Good morning, church family. So glad to be with you here this morning. You notice that we're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, Ephesians 4. And while you're turning there, let me just state the obvious. Those words we just sang are a wonderful summary of the scriptures we're turning to now. Unity in the body allows the world to see the face of Jesus in his people. Ephesians 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 in in just a moment. Before I read the passage, let me just set this up with the words you see atop. Well, actually, you don't. You see them on the screen, not on your sermon notes. Handle with care. Handle with care. You've seen those words before. When you see those words stamped on a parcel left on your, by your front door, um, the, the message gets your attention. Uh, it, it at least tells you not to kick it aside to look at later, right? Those words influence the way you pick up that parcel, how you carry it into the house, even how you open it. I mean, you're not going to stab at it with the scissors, you know, and and rip it open like that. You're going to be more careful. Caution and and, and deliberateness and even expectation, anticipation are in order when you see those words handle with care. There's something fragile inside, something precious, and so you take care. Uh, This morning, the scripture reminds us that our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ places us in relationship with one another, God has graciously, purposefully given us unity in Christ. We've been singing about that. What a mystery this is. The oneness of God's people. This unity is a gift from God. We don't create it. Uh, There's not a program for it. Uh, you, You don't go to school for it. It's a gift from God, a gift of the Spirit of God to his people. And this unity that is a gift from God is ultimately for God. The aim of of, of Christian unity is God's glory in the world. And on this gift that is our unity in Christ, be sure of this, God has stamped in big, bold letters, handle with care. Handle with care. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Handle with care. That's the vibe in Ephesians 4. Notice that unity is not created by Christ's followers. We're to keep it. We're to preserve it. 
not create it. The world, in its ignorance, says, hey, let, let's create unity. You guys have seen the bumper stickers, right? Let, let's all get together and let's just pretend that we don't have differences. How's that working out? Not very well. So disregarding truth does not create unity. Let me say that again. Disregarding truth does not create unity. God creates it by his spirit as his people believe his word. We are united around the truth of God given to us in the word of God. We're on the same page like no other people on the planet because we know God. Do you know God? And we know truth from God. We have the scriptures. And so tainted is humanity by sin that it takes a work of the Spirit of God to recreate, if you will, unity among his people through redemption. And here's the thing. Christian unity is either enjoyed and strengthened and put to use, God's intended use, or it's ignored and weakened and made less useful. In other words, the state of our unity either commends the gospel to our community or it discredits the gospel to our community. Are you hearing this? Which way it goes has everything to do with whether our relationships in the body of Christ are handled with care. And it's perfectly reasonable right now for you to be wondering, what in the world is this about? I mean, what, what on earth is going on here? Since last Wednesday, when the weekly newsletter went out, some of you have been wondering, well, why are we taking a break from our study of Matthew's gospel? We just, we just got started. And, and let me just say that by God's providence, we have both an opportunity, uh, but also a reason for taking a short break. The opportunity is simply this. Um, we have worked our way through chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew's gospel, introductory chapters, uh, and we're at a very natural place to uh, come up for air, if you will, uh, before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and, and we'll be a, a good while in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, there, there's no need to rush, right? I mean, what a thing to be studying when our Lord returns. Um, so just remember that a few months from now. <laughs> church. That's the opportunity. The, the, the reason is this. Inside this morning's bulletin, you'll find an insert notifying you of a rewriting of one item in our church's doctrinal statement. The last item in our church's uh, teaching statement, our doctrinal statement, deals with Christ's return or end times or if you prefer, eschatology. And that teaching statement regarding Christ's return has been discussed by the elders for a couple of years now, rewritten by the elders over the last several months. 
And today we want you to know this change has occurred and, and we want you to understand it. We believe the statement that you see atop that page is a clearer, more unifying statement of what we teach here at Hayden Bible Church. The essentials regarding our Lord's return. The certainty of Christ's return is something we absolutely want to emphasize as a church. How many of you know Jesus is coming again? And certainly we want to emphasize what the Bible clearly teaches us about how we ought to live in light of the certainty of our Lord's return. How many of you know believing in Christ's return, his imminent return, has everything to do with how you live your life? And now that there's some tension in the room, you know why we need Ephesians 4. Not just today. But all the time. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You know the old adage. If you see the word therefore, you're meant to stop and ask yourself what it's there for, right? The word points us back to what preceded it. In this case, the wonderful mysterious truths of what God has done for us in Christ. All of them spelled out in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Paul's letters, as many of you know, often, almost always, are are divided in terms of um, um, theology and then application. Okay? Um, Theology and then the practice, the outgrowing of, of what we believe in how it applies to daily living. And notice that that Paul has told the Ephesian church that to be a Christian is to be one, first of all, chosen by God. You didn't choose God. He chose you. Scripture says he chose you before you even thought of him. Ephesians 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will." Wow, your salvation is the outpouring of God's good pleasure, the exercise of his will. Salvation is all of his grace, not of your merit, not my merit. You who are believers in Jesus today have been singled out and then saved by grace. And Paul goes on to say to the Ephesian believers, even the faith by which you apprehend the work of Christ for you is a gift from God. Have you received this gift from God? 
Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I wonder if I'm, I wonder if I'm good enough to be a believer. I, wonder if I, I wonder if I qualify to be one of those Christians. You know what you need to do to qualify? You need to be a sinner. And you're good at that. You got that covered. And if the Spirit of God is working in your heart even now, so that you see your plight before God who is holy, the scripture says the wages of sin is death, eternal death. The wrath of God, the judgment of God awaits those who are apart from his remedy. What's his remedy? For sinners like us. Is it not Jesus Christ? Who came and lived without sin. So unlike you. And then went to that cross. And took upon himself. The wrath of God that your sin deserves. And my sins deserves. And death had no power to hold him. His body was placed in a tomb, but he rose again. He's alive today. And listen, he is generous to give a share of this victory over sin with you. Turn to this Jesus. Is is the spirit of God enabling faith in you right now? Come to Christ. Here's the thing. You listening? Our salvation places us in relationship with other sinners saved by grace. And how many of you know, none of us is better or more important than the other. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Despite our differences, you say, well, what differences do we have? Well, we have differences in race, believe it or not. Even here in very Caucasian North Idaho, uh, we have differences in economic background. Uh, we, have, we have differences in cultural background. We even have differences, can you believe this, in eschatological scruples, our beliefs about the end times. We are, says Ephesians 3, 6, fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And and Paul goes on to say to these dear ones in Ephesus, he says, look, this blood-bought unity that is yours is a means by which God makes himself known in the world. And so at at the end of chapter 3, he says to, to him, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When the church's walk is worthy, God is glorified. How is the church walking in a way that's worthy? Well, it's to do with this unity that we don't earn. We've simply been given this unity and we're to handle it with care. Therefore, says Paul in Ephesians 4.1, in light of all of that, 
I, I, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy means of equal weight. So, so picture a scale, you know, old school scale. And on one side is your high position in Christ. What did you do to deserve that? Nothing. <laughs> it's all a gift from God. And on the other side of the scale is your practical living as a Christian. They're meant to be in balance, in other words. The worthy walk, the worthy Christian life is the one, the life of one whose high calling in Christ is in balance with his conduct as a Christian. Now just think about this. If unity is a gift from God, then it is. Why would we need this strong warning not to mess it up. This isn't the only place in the Bible where we see really clear words of caution about not messing up the unity that God has given us in Christ. Why do we need that? Because in the body, there is tremendous diversity. Oneness does not imply sameness. I mentioned some of the differences we have among us earlier, but we don't have to imagine what it's like to look at some of our differences and to see how unity is put to the test, maybe pressed a little bit. Um, Should Christians drink wine or not? Throw that one down at the dinner table and then just leave and and see what happens. (laughs) Should Christians send their kids to public schools? Or is homeschooling the way it should be done? Or what about private Christian schools? And if those are okay, which ones? In more recent memory, and I apologize for this, but should Christians get a COVID-19 shot or not? Can we we finally be done with that? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Paul's caution recognizes that there are many ways that unity is challenged. Unity does not require uniformity in non-essentials. I beg you to write that down so your neighbor doesn't forget it. (laughs) Unity does not require uniformity in non-essentials. What what, what do I mean by non-essentials? Well, the essentials are what? The the foundational truths upon which our salvation is built, the deity of Christ, uh, his substitutionary atonement for his people, his resurrection, the trinity, the inerrancy of scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, through the work of Christ alone. Those truths um, are salvific issues, okay? They're they're foundational issues for any church that is a church. We must have agreement on those truths. They're crystal clear in Scripture. But listen, how Christians relate to one another in the non-essentials, not our sameness, but in the non-essentials, that's what preserves unity. Unity, says Paul to the Ephesians, can be preserved 
despite differences in these non-essentials. I know for a fact that in the room right now, uh, there are varying views on all of those issues that I just mentioned. And yet I hear the way you all are singing so sweetly to the Lord. And I can't help but think we all don't have to think the same way when it comes to non-essential issues. So in the same way, still listening, in the same way, we may have differing views of the end times. But how we approach those differences matters greatly to our Lord. How, how costly is our unity? You, you can only measure it by the cross. Will there be a secret rapture of the church at the end of the age prior to the second coming? A rapture that's completely distinct from the second coming? Whatever your view on that, thanks for just... Your poker faces are fantastic. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that and commend you all for that. Um, whatever your view on that, it's pretty strong, isn't it? You've studied it out, I hope. You know why you believe it. You even know some of the other people who believe it, and you read a lot of their work, which reinforces your belief. But do you realize we don't have to agree on the answer to that? We don't. We must agree that our Lord is returning and could do so at any time, he tells us that. Let's be ready for his coming. And let's be found to be those who are about his business when he comes. Amen? Amen. Is Christ's reign on earth after his coming? And is it to be a literal 1,000-year period as Revelation 20 verse 4 suggests? Or is the millennial reign a symbolic unspecified period of time, a period, a period currently in progress now. Whatever your view on that, I'm just spitballing here, but whatever your view on that, it's pretty strong. Again, you know why you believe that? You read all the other people who believe that, and that encourages your belief in that, and that's okay. But let me just say this. Um, we don't have to agree on the answer to that either. We really don't. We must agree that our Lord reigns now. He reigns in the hearts of his people. He reigns in the hearts of all who have bowed in allegiance to Jesus as king. That's salvation. And he most surely will reign one day, tangibly, visibly, indisputably, over all of his world. We must believe that. The Bible makes that plain. The details of that are not as plain, are they? And what does God tell us in his word about these areas? I guess you could call them gray areas, uh, where we cannot be absolutely sure of something. What, what are we to do? We're to search the scriptures personally. And know why we believe what we believe as we're led by the Spirit. 
We don't want to be those who just parrot what somebody else says. Amen? We want to know why we believe what we believe. Then and only then, when it comes to gray areas, things that are not as clear in Scripture, Romans 14 says this, Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. And then says Paul to the Romans, Let your brother or sister be fully convinced in his or her own mind. And so unity, not agreement, not sameness, is the priority when believers disagree over matters of conscience or the non-essentials, as I'm calling them this morning. We want to stay focused on the main things as a congregation. We don't want to get lost in the weeds of minor things. It's always helpful if you nod your head or something. <laughs> it's, just, it's tremendously encouraging to the person standing up here. I, 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 I hope to see, I hope we see a good number of us down at Hayden Days this coming weekend handing out Bibles and extending invitations to the family Bible school that we'll be doing at that park in early August. And the thing of it is, is I would expect that as we do so, there will be those who are premillennial in their understanding of last things. There will be those who are amillennial in their understanding of last things. There may even be somebody who's postmillennial in his or her understanding of last things. And it won't matter a hill of beans at all. And it certainly won't matter a hill of beans to the neighbors apart from Christ that we're praying will meet Jesus. Are you, are you with me? Amen. Two people? That's it? <laughs> Unity does not require uniformity in non-essentials. And what, what does this oneness without sameness look like in relationships? Well, we, we sang it earlier, but it, look at verse 3 of Ephesians 4. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, there is, this isn't an automatic thing. That This preservation of unity, this keeping of unity. How many of you are married or know somebody who is? You, 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 all right, that, that's a rhetorical question. Um, how many of you know preserving unity in a relationship is not automatic? It takes effort. And so Paul says, be eager, be diligent, make every effort to preserve unity in the spirit. The implication of the word preserve, though, is that we didn't create it. It's a, bit, it, it's a gift placed before us by the Spirit of God, and it's marked handle with care. Handle with care. So if unity doesn't require uniformity, what does it require? Well, the, the, the remaining verses in uh, the passage we're looking at suggests this. Unity does require active 
thoughtful graciousness in our relationships with one another. Verse 2 is kind of like the meat in the sandwich. Verse 1 is describing our calling, behavior worthy of Christ. Verse 3 describes the result, the unhindered, unwrinkled unity of the Spirit. What what are the ingredients, though? Well, look look at verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. There are two couplets here. Lowliness and gentleness, and then long-suffering and forbearance. What, What is... Lowliness. Well, I think most of your Bibles say humility if they don't say lowliness. And think of how the natural man, the person apart from God's grace, hates humility. Now, that's not unique to us. It's, it's always been this way. It was certainly this way in Paul's day. In fact, the Greek-speaking people in Paul's day hated the idea of humility so much they didn't use the word. They didn't have a word for it. They also lived in a me-first, my-way kind of culture. We don't have to pretend what that's like. Paul uses a word here for lowliness that really had no prior use before the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it describes the humble self-emptying of Christ that led him to Calvary, where he served his people, not himself. Do you see why this must be a gift of the Spirit? This is not something we work up in ourselves by nature. We're born opposed to it by nature. So humility is describing what happens in the heart of a man when he's willing to yield to others. She's willing to yield in such a way that she doesn't have to get the last word about everything. One of the ways we can show humility, by the way, when it comes to our personal distinctives in eschatology is not to treat one another as uneducated, or unthoughtful simply because we have different views on the finer points of eschatology. Does that make sense? So in, in the same way that we, we really don't need to speak louder to someone who doesn't speak English, that's, that's not really helping. If she would study this out more, she'd see it my way. He must not care about the Bible. He he doesn't see it my way. That's not humility. Listen, Charles Spurgeon, have you heard of him? He was a historic premillennialist. I don't know if he knows that, but I don't know if he would have worn that label, but he's been described that way. D.L. Moody was a dispensationalist. Martin Luther was an amillennialist. And Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist, although I, I don't think Edwards would, would agree with the way he's been characterized. He had a very developed, very um, different eschatology. My point is, we don't remember any of those guys for their eschatology. We remember them for their tremendous contributions to the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Still in verse 2, 
with all lowliness and gentleness. What, what's gentleness? Well, the, the old King James renders it meekness, meekness, strength under control. War horses in the ancient world went into battle trained to protect their master. And they were very massive and very muscular animals, and yet they were under complete control of their rider. A meek horse was crucial in battle. Nothing to do with weakness. So so gentleness, meekness, is, is crucial in our battle to preserve unity when it comes to our scruples, when it comes to our Ideas about the non-essentials. Gentleness is strength under the control of the Spirit of God. And you think, well, how, how important is this mindset for us as members of Hayden Bible Church? As members of the body of Christ, regardless of your home church. Well, again, Paul says at the very beginning, I beseech you. In other words, I urge you. I I implore you. I I beg you to be attentive to these things. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's the second pairing, long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. Long-suffering is patience on steroids. Macrothrumia, extreme patience and kindness. And it it comes from believing that God's timetable for something, not ours, is actually the right one. When we have a proper expectation like that, we have patience in the biblical sense. When is this building expansion going to get done anyway? I mean, how long does it take to put up a few rooms in the back? Apparently this long. <laughs> Apparently this long. And, and when are we going to get more parking? I love you, Kim. (laughs) You're hooked up funny, but I love you. Right. Listen, here's the thing. Of course we're working on these things. And we have an enemy who wants us to pick at each other over these things. At the end of the day, we believe in the providence of God. And God's providence for his people is always good, and it's always right, so we can just chill out, right? I think that's a theological term. I, 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 remember, I remember as a young father, and I'm, as you know, I'm still terribly young, but as a, as a younger father, sitting at the dinner table with our kiddos, um, Jacob's five or six and Sarah's three or four, and I, I don't remember what they were doing in particular, but I do remember they were driving me nuts, and, um, which was their job at that, at that point in their development. And I, without even thinking... I raised my voice and I said to them, act your age. I mean, I mean that's a rookie parent thing, isn't it? Act, act your age. And, and, and the thing of it is, is they, they, they were acting their age. 
And that, that, that's the whole point. And, and with, with attentive parenting and, and, and their own maturing, um, the passing of time, a lot of grace, amen, they grow out of that. How many of you know that unity in the church is hindered by expecting all of our fellow church members to be precisely where we are in terms of our maturity in Christ? There's none of this act your age business. There's patience. And there's forbearance. Be patient with one another, says Paul. Bearing with one another in love. That, that means we put up with one another in areas that are non-essential. Can we do that? Forbearance in love is the willingness to put up with someone or something in a spirit of love. In other words, not feelings of love, not warm fuzzies. When someone else's scruples poke you, you don't feel warm fuzzies. So you got to get past that part. At times, this agape love, this commitment of the will to benefit the other will be contrary to to feeling. Christian love is often this way, contrary to feeling. Not always, but often. And, and these personal character traits, which are the work of the Spirit of God, preserve unity in our fellowship. And so Paul says in verse 3, that, hey, you're attentive to these things. That means you're endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a great gift from God. And like all precious things, it's fragile. So handle it with care. Now we could end there, and maybe it seems like we should, but, I, but we're not. Um, although, but let, let, me just, let me just wrap up with this. Do you realize that unity in the church is the answer to our Savior's prayer for us before he went to the cross? What was on Jesus' mind before he died for you? What was on our Savior's mind before he took upon himself the condemnation from the Father that your sin deserves and mine too? Jesus' prayer for his first disciples and then for us is this. He prayed, I do not pray for these, the, the, my first followers alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Note that last part. That the world may believe that you sent me. How amazing is that? The union of God's people to himself and their union one to another by the Spirit is so otherworldly, so wonderful, if you will, that it is a testimony to the world of the gospel. Husbands and wives, just think about that for a minute. As you both walk worthy of your calling. Your marriage itself pictures the gospel to people who are looking at it. 
Did you realize that? That's God's intent for your marriage. It's about his glory. Radical forgiveness. Radical mercy, grace, kindness, selflessness. Sacrificial service. That's that's the gospel in action. Church, think of this. As we walk worthy of our calling, our relationships, despite our differences in the non-essentials, our unity proclaims to our community that the gospel really is the power of God to save. The world is meant to look at the church and just not have an answer for this otherworldly brotherhood, if you will, born of the same womb that exists among God's people. The very unity of the triune God is put on display in the unity of his people. I'll end with that. Verses four through six, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice the spirit, verse four says, there's, there's only one body because there's, there's one spirit. Verse 5, there's only one hope belonging to our Christian calling, one faith, one baptism. Why? Because there's only one Lord. It's all to do with Jesus. It's all from him. And thirdly, there's one Christian family, says verse 6, embracing us all because there is one God and Father who brings us into his family, who is above all and through all and in all. Now let me just end with this, for real. Why, why, why did I mention Spurgeon, Moody, Luther, and Edwards? Because I want us to think about the grace we've extended to those dead guys. Can we not extend the same grace to those who are still living? Wouldn't that be a thing? Ephesians 4 reminds us we really can be as gracious to one another as we are in our views of the saints who have gone before us. Unity does not require uniformity in non-essentials. Unity does require active, thoughtful graciousness in our relationships with one another. Let me just say this before we pray. If, if you have questions about the change in our church's doctrinal statement, that teaching position about eschatology, please talk to one of the elders. And as you prepare to talk to one of the elders, our phone numbers are in your bulletin, please put your thoughts through the filter of Ephesians 4 and Romans 14 and John 17. Our unity is precious. And so we handle it with care. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that we need not expend any effort to make it practical. It just is. I pray, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts to see you for who you are, to see the high cost of this precious family relationship that you've brought us into. I thank you for the way that you have allowed us to
to enjoy the sweetness of that fellowship, Lord. We ask for grace that it would continue and would even grow. And Lord, for that, we need you. And so we ask you for it with great expectation in Jesus.